You're listening to Taking Care of Business with me, Rob Rose. And me, Julieta Talevi. And we take a weekly look at the front and back stories to the week's biggest news. And remember, if there's anything you'd like to ask us or uh, us to cover, please would you get in touch. You can email us TCB, taking care of business, at businesslive.co.za. Well, next week we have a national election, our sixth democratic election since 1994. Um, and this time we'll know, this time next week, we'll know who won what. Um, in the weeks leading up to it, we've had many pollsters cranking up one prediction after another some looking ludicrous and some looking more believable. Um, but so we thought we'd spend some time chatting to somebody who spends his time tinkering with the science of polls and looking what makes sense, looking at what makes sense and what doesn't. Um, he's Dr. Zaid Kimi, Program Manager at the Foundation for Human Rights. Before that, he was a Senior Manager in the Office of the CEO of the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, or as you and I know it, the CSIR. Uh, Zaid, welcome. No, welcome, Rob. Um, so I'd, uh, I found, um, in fact, I went to a lecture uh, um, that uh, Tim Harford, the undercover, undercover economist, hosted last year, and he was talking about super forecasters, and it was really a, fin- a fascinating mm-hmm. lecture. Um, um, and he, he likes to call forecasts the junk food of political and economic analysis, tasty to consume, but neither satisfying nor healthy in the <laughs> long run. So why are we so addicted to forecasts, and, and in particular to polls, especially ahead of elections? Well, it's a general fear of ignorance. Right? <laughs> Sounds it's completely unrealistic. <laughs> it's the same people, reason people look at weather fo- forecasts instead of just waiting and looking out of the door in the morning and saying, you know, what the hell, it's sunny. <laughs> you want to know what's going to happen. Yeah. So it gives people um, a sort of illusion of certainty about the world. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, and of course, there's it's very comforting to have that illusion, even though it can at times be completely incorrect. Yeah, oh. well, at times completely incorrect, well, almost always completely incorrect, would <laughs> be closer to the answer. Um, yeah, it's much like junk food. If there's a lot of junk food, you can probably survive, you know, if you had a thousand McDonald's burgers and chips. You know, you could probably make a nutritious meal out of that. Uh, the problem we have in South Africa is that it is junk food. These are poles, and there are just not that many of them. So you have the worst of both worlds. It's not very nutritious. And there's, and not, there's not much of it. There's not much of it. <laughs> you know, it's odd you say that, but even overseas, the polling, the success rate seems to be lamentable when there are lots of polls. You look at the American election, and I think that the New York Times had Hillary Clinton to win 85% the day before yes. the election. Um, even in a country like that where there are numerous polls, they get it, they get it lamentably wrong. Yeah. I mean, why is, why is that? I mean, how does that actually happen that you have, you know, you have people who should, who should be telling you what's happening and they aren't able to at all, despite their best intentions? Okay, so... I mean, without getting too technical, if you have a poll, you're looking at something called a random sample. If you had infinite resources and infinite time, you wouldn't conduct a poll. You just conduct your own little mini election, and then you tell people what the answer is going to be. Oh, sort of like Zimbabwe. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, next week's election results, uh, (laughs) Mr. President, sort of thing. Uh, But you don't. So you've got... um, yeah, you've got to interview a relatively small number of people, two and a half thousand to three thousand. And out of a voting population of, I think, somewhere around 27. 27 million in this country, yeah. Yeah, that's not a lot. So the, the science behind random sampling says that if you pick those people randomly, 
you put them all into a, a hat and you picked out 3,000 names, you'd have a decent chance of getting somewhere close to the right answer. But there's uh, a lot of work to be done between get a random sample and an actual random sample. I mean, okay, so uh, because presumably in South Africa you want those samples to be uh, representative of mm. South Africa's demographics yeah. and age and incomes. Uh, so can a, is a random sample ever truly random? Must I mean, must it be random or must it be strategically random, shall we say? It's got to be random in its methodology. So you have to give everyone who's a vote, potential vote in South Africa an equal chance of being picked, right? So that's, that's the first part. Now, as it turns out, if you did your, your sample and you had your 2,500 people and you tabulated the results in a little Excel spreadsheet, the answer wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be particularly meaningful because you'd have to adjust those numbers for people who were going to vote, people who were registered to vote, people who intended or were sure they were going to vote, or people who thought they may vote. And so there's uncertainty in people's intentions. There's also uncertainty in what people are willing to tell you, mm. you know, what a socially acceptable answer is. You know. Like nobody would say they're going to vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, people wouldn't say. And this was, uh, you know, the British election in 1998, I think, uh, when everyone, you know, some, maybe it was 1996, 1995, everyone expected Labour to win. The poll showed Labour was going to win because no one wanted to admit to a pollster that they were going to vote Conservative. So what happens now is that you get your basic set of results with, and then you, know, you cross your fingers and you hope it was a random sample and things didn't go horribly wrong. And then you adjust that number by registered voters, by people who you think are likely to vote. So that the end result is more of an art than it is an actual science. So how do you make those adjustments, though? You make those adjustments based on what people say, whether they say they're going to vote or not, what the historic data tells you about whether people in certain demographic groups or age groups voted or not. So you make assumptions that the past is going to be a good guide to the future, and you, you, know, you proceed on that basis. So it's historical information, what people tell you about their actual intentions, what, you th what the IEC says the voting population is going to look like, um, and some people may adjust it further to take account of whether or not people, they think people may have lied. So in terms of the polls you've looked at, and you've obviously done quite a lot of statistical modeling and, and dealing with these kind of things over the last couple of years, I mean, which has the, been the one that surprised you the most? And in that respect, what went wrong with the polling there? Was it the U.S. election in 2016? Or? I think the U.S. election in 2016 was surprising. But remember, there was only in the end, I think, about, because of the way the U.S. election is around 40,000 votes in it. Because mm. Hillary Clinton still got 3.2% of the popular vote. But, um, yeah, she got... Well, she got 2.6%, and I think the polls suggested she would get 3.2%. Yeah. So it was a very small fraction in it. Yeah, so in aggregate, it got the numbers right. But when there were small variations, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, um, where the, the difference between winning and losing was tens of thousands of votes, 
So those small shifts um, made it look as though Donald Trump had won a convincing victory. On the other hand, the Brexit vote, people got horribly wrong. Mm. You know, they, they thought it was something like 55, 45. Mm. On the night of the election, people were still confidently predicting 55, 45. And then, you know, as the numbers actually turned out, was a horrible shock to everyone involved. Was that because people, do you think the lie factor played a big role there? The lie factor played a role. But as I said, there's, there's a science to it, which is the data collection part, making sure that's a random sample, asking good questions. And then there's more of an art, adjusting the numbers to... To, to your own biases? To account for what you think the biases in the data are. And... What I think the results have shown us is that pollsters have introduced their own biases. In particular, in uh, the Brexit election, um, people tended not... When the results showed Brexit was going to win, they had a sort of quick squiz around and said, oh, my God, everyone else says it's... You know, they're going to stay in the EU. Perhaps we need to adjust these results a little bit so they don't look make us look like complete morons when we <laughs> predict. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, side, uh, interestingly enough, the Institute for Race Relations came out with a poll this week. Um, I think it's the first part. Called the, they called it the mm. Criterion Report. Yeah. And they talk about a, a national margin of error of 2.8%. What yeah. does that mean? Does that mean that um, that's the... Uh, that's what they could get wrong. So it, it sounds very slight. It sounds as yes. if you're hardly making any uh, errors in in your polling methodology or the way you've collected the poll. Okay. That's how I understand it. So, I mean, can you explain that to us? That Because it seems to have been a very surprising poll to a lot of people, yeah. the results uh, thereof. That 2.5% is a purely scientific calculation. So it's an absolute best case. If you've done a pure random sample of two and a half thousand to three thousand people, then your margin of error will be about two and a half percent. That means, so any number that they publish of an opinion poll is fuzzy. Okay. It may look pretty precise when they write it down 49.5%, but what the margin of error means that it's anywhere between 47 and a half and 51 and a half. No one has any idea. So it could be anywhere in that band. Okay. 95 times out of 100. But that's still quite small. Sorry, Rob. No, yeah. I, I, was, I was interested in the fact that we have two polls. You know, we talk about, we, you talk about how we don't have too many pollsters mm. in this country, but we had two polls last week. We had Ipsos mm. coming out and saying that they believe that at a 71% um, turnout rate, which they think is about, is about right or certainly replicated mm. the, last, the last election, you would have 61% of the country voting for the ANC and you'd have mm. about 18% voting for the DA. The Institute of Race Relations survey just after that um, seemed a whole lot more catastrophic for the ANC. It said, you know, if 100% of people pitched up, which obviously won't happen, the 27 million registered voters, you would have the ANC even losing its national yeah. national vote, um, and but declining either way from its from the IR. You know, the Ipsos poll and the IR poll, there were vast discrepancies. Yeah. They both sampled quite a large number of people. I think Ipsos was about 3,400. Mm. And an IRR was 2,600. How can there be, you know, in terms of science polling, how can there be such differences when you have the science pretty much similar? Okay, so I don't have access to the raw data that they generated. Um, but one good guide is that this is 
I think, the third iteration of that race relations poll. And their February version had ANC at 55%. Okay. So in a, in a case like this, you'd look at the balance of probabilities. You have four or five polls which put the ANC anywhere between 55 and 60%, and you have one poll that puts them mm. at 51 mm. So for race relations, the problem is immediate, is they have two polls run within fairly close period of time, which give them answers that are contradictory. It could be that it's just bad luck. Right? You've, you've drawn a sample that's biased. So when we say within that margin of error, it means that you know, 95 times out of 100, you don't expect the variation beyond 2.5%, but 95 is not 100. There are, could be a couple of occasions when your sample is just tragically bad, just by, by chance, mm. in which case you get a result that's horribly off. Mm. So once off polling, you know, does run that risk, you could just end up with a bad sample. Uh, what people who tend to do is then they do their post-polling, um, adding secret Post-polling post-mortem. <laughs> <laughs> they add more and more stuff until the results looked until it looks like it wanted. Oh, that'll <laughs> never work. What's that about, mate? <laughs> um, Zaid, but they're going to run another poll next week because they, they talk about how polls can change the closer elections um, uh, advance. Is that is that not because, I mean, they had a large number of people in... One of the polls, I'm not sure it was that one, saying that there's 45% of people who were unsure who they're going to vote for on election day. And as the, as the time nears, people become more clear of who they're going to vote for. Is that not part of the reason? That could be. I, uh, I find the idea that 45% of the South African electorate haven't decided who they're going to vote for a little bit unbelievable. Um, realistically, I don't think with that uncertain, uh, you know, individuals possibly, but I think most people have made up their mind. I think what will happen, I'll predict, <laughs> is that the next IRR poll, if they run it, if they have a poll coming out you know, on election day, will have the results back in the mainstream of the ANC getting between 55 and 60%. Yeah. I mean, they talk about um, voters getting squeezed by the larger parties. Can you, what does that mean? I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> really, I should be asking them. But um, <laughs> I guess it's uh, I guess it's the larger parties putting more pressure. You know, the kind of messages that come out saying, "Don't waste your vote on a smaller party." Yeah. Um, so you think that the IR poll was problematic in terms of that? In terms of those, I think I would put it down to a bad sample. Um, you know, that would be the most charitable reading. <laughs> of the poll. <laughs> Some other reading would be that you, you needed to make a news splash with the poll and if your poll said exactly what everyone else said then it would disappear without trace <laughs> in the news cycle. <laughs> so you're saying even the polling is populist? <laughs> um, you know, it did make a splash. Everyone's talking about it because, you know, you know, there are these polls which are the public polls, there are the internal polls which, um, the political parties run for themselves. And those seem replete with biases. I mean, that certainly produces the results that the parties generally no. want. You don't think? No. 
I mean, the ANC, you know, I've been involved with the election prediction thing for five elections, and the ANC team have been pretty sure about the result before they've come in. And they've been very, very accurate. Well, and what, what's their methodology? Does it? They do exactly the same thing. I mean, they pay uh, a polling firm to go out and collect the data for them, and they take it very seriously. Um, so I've, you know, seen a little bit behind the curtain on, on at least what they've done, and they're not surprised. They've never been surprised. And the DA, because I do feel the DA's samples were a bit different and produced different results. I haven't had any insight, but yeah, I'd be surprised if, you know, if a party's internal polling was as bad as the public polling was. They're far more vested in getting, not having their ego struck, but in getting good information that they can act on. Mm. Um, so I'd, I suspect that they're not in the business. It's, it's not a PR thing. They really want to know where they have to spend their resources and what the results are going to be. Yeah. And the indications there from the ANC side, you know, probably 58% mm. would be a good bet. Um, so is that, I mean, in terms of your position, I mean, what do you what do you think is the most likely outcome? 58 to 60 for the NCE? Yeah. And the DA? The DA, I think, probably sticks at about 2022. The FF is the variable. I mean, there's some polls have put them as high as 14. Mm. Others have put them, I think, just under 10. I think they'll stick somewhere in that in that range. But 10 is still, even if it were 10, that's still a considerably higher margin than than last time when they got 6%, right? Yeah. yeah. It, it was the IRR April uh, uh, sample which put them at 14.9%, yeah, and that's up from February, which was 12.2%. December was 11%. September was 13%. And as you say, last elections, they were 6.3% of the yeah. um, You know, it's they've had effective messaging. I mean, basically, if you follow the script, which you know seems to be an applied worldwide of provincing everything to everyone, <laughs> you know, leave the EU, leave the EU, reclaim your country. Yes, uh, you know, make America great again. <laughs> it's uh, uh, if you're not too worried about the consequences, um, and most political parties are, you know, only vaguely worried about the consequences. But I suppose the EFF is completely unconcerned. It's knows that it has no realistic chance of actually delivering or being in a position to deliver on anything. So promise away. Yeah. And um, it does, I think, given the inequalities in South Africa, it is a compelling message. If, if your message is your political leadership is corrupt and they're screwing you over, and if you gave a new batch a chance, they'd give you better stuff, you know, mm. What's not to like about that? Yeah, although that's what the IFP is promising. I listened to one of the adverts today. And the IFP, um, I mean, I was actually astonished at, at how poorly they do in the elections. The tiny, minuscule amounts that they get. Yeah, they also have had their split. You know, they had the NNP, I think it was, that split off from the IFP. So basically what used mm. to be the IFP, I think their high watermark was about 7%. In the early elections, they're down to one and a half or two, mm. and the NNP picks up another two. Um, 
So I was going to ask as well is, I mean, obviously the way people respond to these things is often personal. They respond to the person. Obama, voting for Obama was largely a personal thing. Um, to what extent does, does policies, do policies matter to people? Um, in, in I, I suppose that's one of the questions that the, the polls would pick up on. But, you know, character of the individual versus actual policies, you never see people speaking of policies much. I don't, I think... One of the things that happened in the ANC is become a sort of policy wasteland. There is no policy debate or differentiation within the ANC. You have factions who want mm. X and factions who don't want X, and the X is, you know, personal enrichment, corruption, etc. And that extends across. I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed to find serious policy differences between the ANC and the DA. I mean, practical policy differences. The FF is a different kettle of fish because they don't have policies. They just have wish lists of mm. stuff. Um, you know, in they have a microphone. Yeah, in the sense that the DA and the ANC are political parties still, in the sense that they have political leaderships, they have internal fights, they have potentially you know, policy disputes. The DA may have a policy dispute about affirmative action. Uh, the EFF, to all intents, isn't a political party. It's a cult masquerading as a political party. So, <laughs> you know... Um, a personality cult. Yes, it's... Yeah. And a simple test would be for anyone in the EFF to say something that's contradicted by Malema. Hmm. Won't happen. It's not so. It's not a political party in the sense that we've known it. Uh, so I um, noticed that. Um, so there are a few of the smaller parties included in, in uh, certainly mm. the IRR poll that that I read. Um, not all of them, though, and there are forty-eight parties contesting yeah. this election. D- does that? Do you find that interesting? Does that introduce more of a, a margin of error? Um, I mean, what is there a? Is there an ultimate influence that having more parties contest an election have on the results of that election? Or is this to be expected? I don't think the number of parties will materially affect the results of the election. You know, so the big parties are going to take, let's say, 60, 20 and 15. Uh, that makes of 90. Somewhere around, yeah. yeah. The rest of them will pick up uh, the bits and pieces. Um, and whether there are 50 or 100 of them doesn't make any difference. For, for polling purposes, they make no difference at all. Um, in fact, uh, the smaller the party, the more accurate your prediction about the, the result. So it's just the way the science of uh, statistical forecasting works. If your party was going to get if the polls said that you were going to get 0.1%, the margin of error around that 0.1% is actually very, very small, far mm. smaller than 25 The 25 applies to numbers closer to the 50, 40, 30% mm. margin. So, yeah, I don't think the, the smaller parties matter all that much. Yeah. The, um, I mean, to go back to that discussion of the, the policies, does this, I mean, we've seen a lot of 
elections won in recent times by companies that have companies political parties that have jettisoned policy discussion over just rhetoric populism populism and we have the DA following that 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 um, I suppose that script to some extent now it's all about you know the message messaging around the guptas and fearmongering do you, do you feel that this has changed the landscape of electioneering in the last say 10 years brexit trump these kind of things I think what what's happened is that it's proved remarkably effective mm. um, you know so that now you have a supposedly liberal party like the DA banging on about migrants you know as if the solution were to erect taller fences mm. or you know stop people at the border and that's insane because it's, it's not going to happen it's not going to help but it's a good message to sell because it demonstrates something about who you are and the ANC itself taking you know positions on migration illegal immigrants etc i think what has happened is in hungary and poland and more likely in brazil people shown that this sort of messaging does work um mm. so instead of having a a policy discussion you have a fear based discussion you have a fear based discussion um and you know to some extent the left wing parties have fallen for it you know in in the uk when the discussion about migration started the proper response would have been um we don't talk about that that's not a that's not a rights based position you know, mm. it's wrong to have those sorts of discussions instead of people worrying about the short term political effects so they start having a discussion on the same ground saying that's you know that's a reasonable discussion to have about whether we should kick people out or stop them at the borders or you know send them back to their own countries to die etc etc <laughs> but these are these are politicians i mean this is about their livelihood it's about getting themselves elected so yes. so the longer term picture the kind of whether you're doing the right thing is very secondary towards getting myself elected in next week's election isn't it yes i mean they all want to be elected and you know if um if it means that we all end up living in sewers hunting rats for a living you living know living in an idiocracy in Wyoming yes i mean discussions about climate change and you know an existential threat to mm. our country none you know it's just it doesn't figure um so yeah i think it's a political failing and I'm not sure what the answer is there. How do you put in place a mechanism that addresses that because you can't really force people to read the policies and you know corral them up and say go and vote based on the policies. I mean how do you correct that at a larger political level? Well, if we want to protect a constitutional democracy, then our final defense against it is the public that they educated and aware of what those choices mean. and um you know you know the sort of thing i deal with in my, my day job is about the extent to which we tell people about what's in our constitution and what it means and what their rights are and if people don't know those things they're liable to blame the democratic system itself for the failing so the reason why we can't have nice stuff why we have such an while we're living in poverty while we have corrupt leaders is democracy itself it's this process of how we elect people so we need to find you know sort of 
the sort of people who can take over and solve the system. Mm. Um, you know, strong, firm leaders, men, by and large. Of course. Yes. Orange toupees. Yeah. <laughs> um, Zaid, people are billing, billing this as the most important election since 1994. And Hasn't yet, that always happened? Isn't that always the most we, important We election? do seem to say that every five years. But the interesting thing is that the, the level of apathy also seems to be quite high. So does that not introduce – how can you have the most important election since 1994 and yet higher voter apathy than maybe has before been experienced? I think it is important as in as far as the political future of the ANC is concerned, right? Because if the ANC, in a worst-case scenario, is forced to choose a coalition partner, it will choose the EFF, and Cyril Ramaphosa and his faction will be screwed. Right? So it means it means a lot because we've you know, lived through nine years of frankly, insane political leadership. <laughs> uh, like how you're using the word leadership there. Yeah. And what, you know, so the consequences are quite serious for, because what it means is we could face another five years uh, before we have a chance to, another chance to pull the brakes on this sort mm -hmm. of thing. Apathy, because I think lots of there's a, a study that came out in The Guardian yesterday about populism. You know, so, I mean, some, some of the methodology is a little bit weird. But South Africa was rated as the second most populist country after Brazil, hmm. in the sense that people believe... The lies. <laughs> no, they believe that the political system is run by an elite who are interested only in self-enrichment. But that has actually been borne out by the yes. way our country's been yes. run in the last 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and so the response would be that this constitutional democracy, the system we have, electoral democracy, is not delivering because what we get when we go and vote is this bunch of... It's completely cognitively dissonant from, you know, what people promised you before the election. Yeah. Um, and so we need to change the system somehow or that the problem is people have too many rights. Um, you know, so criminals have too many rights, migrants have too many rights, women have too many rights, etc., etc. And if we could just fix that, women know your place. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the way this works is you pick on some vulnerable pop group, and they the, the cause. Of, I mean, you know. but that's why immigrants have become have become the pariahs globally in in this electoral fallout. Yes. Populism, immigrants have, have got the worst of it, you know, yeah. from America to this country. Yeah, and I think the long-term problem is that um, potentially you can solve your immigrant problem by booting them out. Then the populists are going to have to find someone else to make the bad guys and, you know, <laughs> could just be your bad luck that you're one of them the next time around. Mm. <laughs> because it doesn't stop. Uh, you know, you don't have some, you're not able to resolve the economic and social problems after you've picked on some group that you think are the cause and you've solved it. And there's no magic solution then.
Maybe just, I, I think my last question to you would be, does that, um, the level of apathy, the fact that populism is such a, is such a, um, a, rising, trend. a rising trend, especially in our own mm. politics, does that mean that electoral reform is, it's, 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 um, it is seriously incumbent on us to introduce some electoral form, reforms in South Africa that make you feel as if you are closer to the people that you're electing? No, I, I don't think there's a perfect electoral system. But I do think some form of direct representation is necessary. Um, you know, I think there was the Fonzale Slubbert Commission about hmm. 10 years ago that recommended some not, you know, some relatively, you know, minor reforms to our electoral system uh, so that we have a combination of um, uh, a direct electoral system with a proportional voting system, much like we have in our local government. Yeah? So you still have a ward councillor, but the way it works is that the total number of ward councillors are distributed according to a PR system. So in terms of voting for the president directly, I mean, you'd be... Voting for the president directly would be one. Um, that, I think, would be a more substantive constitutional change because we have a parliamentary mm. democracy where the president is the leader of the party in parliament. A direct vote for a, pre a president would take us closer to the US model where you have an elected executive. I think that's a more substantive change that people would have to think about. Um, but a good change, a bad change? I don't, you know, there are no perfect systems. So once, it may all look very much green on the other side mm. because we're struggling through what we have. But when we get there, I think there could be additional problems with governance if you had a directly elected executive. Okay. So just last question. Um, you know, I suppose now um, to put you on the spot, what are your thoughts? What is your what is your kind of your bet for next week's election in terms of the results, as well as for Gauteng and the Western Cape? Where do you see it? Where do you see the chips falling? Um, I think I'm going to go with a consensus pick, somewhere <laughs> between 55 and 60 for the ANC, somewhere between 20 and 25 for the DA. And I think the EFF will come in under 10. And Gauteng in the Western Cape? Gauteng, I think, will stay. Well, you know, I've seen some polling results for Gauteng. Uh, the ANC will narrowly retain Gauteng. Um, all of the results say that, that, strangely, that the Western Cape is sort of on a knife edge. Mm. Um, they haven't chosen a particularly charismatic um, candidate for Premier. Uh, uh, but... Yeah, I'm not sure. I think they'll narrowly keep the Western Cape, but uh, it is a bit of a toss-up. Mm -hmm. Zaid, we have to leave it there. Thanks very much okay. for joining us on no our problem. podcast. Um, that was Taking Care of Business with uh, Rob Rose, editor of the Financial Mail, and myself, Juliette Televi, uh, and Zaid Kimi is Program Manager, the Foundation for Human Rights.